about your nightclub act? Okay. Well, you see, I pretend I'm home getting dressed for a date. Take a comb, I comb my hair. Take a flower, smell it, and put it in my lapel. And then I spot the audience. Once my clothes were shabby, tailors called me cabby, so I took a vow. Said this bumblebee, Bobarumbo, now I'm smooth and snappy. Now my tailor's happy. I'm the cat's meow. My wardrobe is a wow. Got my tweed pressed, got my best vest. All I need now is the girl. Got my stripe. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March twenty first, twenty twenty one. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good day. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Hey, I noticed Peter's, Peter's already starting in with the She Loves Me stuff. Because you said good morning and he said good day. <laughs> so we're just going to continue in that way, I'm sure. <laughs> well, good day to you. <laughs> uh, how many days to Christmas? We're just, yeah, right. we're just getting... <laughs> yeah, we could do that, just, too. Just getting started on spring, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody somebody let the weather people know because it's uh, it's a beautiful day out there today, at least in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. So I am so happy that we have a very special guest joining us this morning. Emily Mann is with us. I, 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 I don't even know what to say because for 30 years, she was the artistic director of the Tony Award-winning McCarter Theater Center in Princeton, New Jersey. We have known her as a playwright uh, as well, and it's just a, a real pleasure to talk with you, Emily. Thank you for coming on Broadway Radio. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me about Emily Mann. Where, where, do, you, where do you come from? Where, where did you end up growing up? Oh, well, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> it's a long life. Uh, I was uh, born in Massachusetts, and my father was an American historian, professor, and my mother a teacher of reading. I started out um, uh, as a little girl in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, where my father taught at Smith College, because he believed, um, luckily for me and my sister, in the education of women. So I had uh, an early feminist dad. Um, then we went to Chicago um, because his best friend, John Hope Franklin, the you know internationally renowned founder of Black Studies Movement, African-American Studies, um, wooed him uh, to Chicago. 
and I plopped there in 66, beginning of high school, and so was witness to the late 60s revolution right in the center of it. Wow. With wow. Elijah Muhammad living two doors down and the Black Panther Party. SDS had taken over at the University of Chicago, much oh to my, my father's God. chagrin. Um, and um, there I was at uh, having gone through public school in New England. I was now in uh, the lab school at um, University of Chicago, which was experimental learning. So that was uh, the, uh, the cauldron, and I certainly came of age politically and personally um, there. And um, then was uh, very grateful to uh, go to Harvard from there. I mean, I thought I was going to Harvard. I have since been told when I go back to speak there that I'm Harvard Radcliffe. And right, have a right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I anticipated that, right. Uh, and then from there... Went off to, you know, where I continued my, I discovered my love of theater in high school. And, um, well, tell us how. Were you an actress? Were you uh, a student director? What? I got a crush on a boy who was in the theater (laughs) and I followed him there. And he was an actor. And, um, I was told that if I worked on the production that I would uh, be able to go to the cast party. Uh. So that's what I did. I think I swept floors. and uh, <laughs> But I fell in love with the theater watching it all um, and then went from sweeping floors to doing props to doing makeup to finally acting And then my junior year in high school, my drama teacher, who um, was, I was, you know, the leading actress in my, you know, group said, I think you have a director said, you see the whole. So I started to direct and everything fell into place and I adored it. I'd also been writing mainly fiction and, you know, short stories and all that. And started to write plays as well. And then I went off to um, Harvard, where they didn't have a drama mm-hmm. um, program, but they had the Loeb Drama Center, where mm-hmm. there was this place where you could just direct and write and act. And, you know, I lived there and took classes that didn't start before 11 in the morning. And I, <laughs> lived, I lived at the Loeb Drama Center and became one of the leaders there. But when I saw all my friends trying to decide whether they were going to go off to L.A. and become film directors and writers or whether they were going to go off to Yale and New York and and become um, uh, theater people, I went to talk to my uh the guy who was running the Loeb Drama Center, and he said, oh, my dear, I'm so sorry to tell you. You may be quite talented, but you know women can't direct wow. in this country. So mm. you should perhaps think about children's theater. I had wow. just directed the Scottish play, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. children's theater was not exact. Not that mm. I had no. children's theater, that was not for me. <laughs> um, so what I did was, because I had heard from Lynn Meadow, people who knew Lynn, that she had left Yale because she was treated so badly as a woman and felt she had to start her own theater in order to work. I I applied to the Guthrie Theater's fellowship program um, as a director, and they took me. And I was Mm -hmm. the first woman to get the 
Bush Fellowship. And then five years later, the first woman to direct on the Guthrie main stage. And then I was launched. Um, what was that show, by the way, on the main stage? It was The Glass Menagerie. Mm-hmm. It was with Barbara Brin and Cara Duff McCormick. Ah, I remember um, her from Moon Children. Yeah. The, that's where I met John Spencer. Uh-huh. Oh, and Jeffrey Chandler. It was a huge success. Ming Cho Lee did the set. Oh, how oh, nice. Gosh. And made me an artist. I mean, mm-hmm. wow, to have had that opportunity. And it was Alvin Epstein who had come to um, take over from Michael Langham. And he'd seen my work around town in the smaller theaters. And he said, oh, my God, I want to give you a, a, a show on our main stage. And that's how it happened. Oh, it's a it's a um, it's a terrible statement either way. But when that fellow said that to you about how women can't direct, do you think he meant? Do you think he meant that they he didn't think they had the ability, or did he mean that no one would ever hire you? I think he meant that no one could ever hire me because mm-hmm. it was the sort of you know hierarchy, yeah, uh, patriarchy. Was, yes, it was the patriarchy at work. Yeah. I was, I was as a student, this leading director of mm. my a group there. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't that I couldn't direct. It was that no one would hire me. I couldn't have a profession and, you know, stop now before your heart is broken. I find very interesting the fact that your daddy was um, involved with the um, the early black studies movement, and uh, because you certainly um, did so much diversity at McCarter yeah. during the years you were there, and of course uh, one of the crown jewels was having our say, mm-hmm. um, which got my Tony vote as the best play of the year. And uh, the thing was that uh, one wouldn't expect that a white woman would be dealing with the Delaney sisters and creating a play out of it. Um, That's so interesting that you bring that up because of course um, I grew up in a black family, the the Franklin family and the Mann family were like one family. uh And when I got the idea um, and I was working with Judy James and Camille Cosby, who were producing it um, here at McCarter and then on Broadway, I went down to see John Hope Franklin um, who had been at St. Augs and knew the Delaney sisters. He did. Wow. Yes. And he <laughs> took me to St. Augs. He took me all over and introduced me there as his daughter. And so uh-huh. I was able to cross the color line, if you will. Uh-huh. Someone talked to me and I got the inside scoop on all of it. Um, but I, you know, my... Um, dedication to the work of um, African and African American people came from, you know, the gut, not from the, you know, what was politically correct. It was even mm-hmm. what was politically correct. I, I had been brought up by, you know, John Hope and Aurelia Franklin. And to this day, John Franklin is um, nearly like my brother. Um, uh-huh. So uh, there is, it's no coincidence is what I'm saying. And of course I grew up in the crucible of Hyde Park um, in the South side of Chicago when all of this was going on. And so, you know, my interest in those stories and in telling those stories um, has been lifelong. 
Really? Yeah, and I mean, really, um, Athol Fugard, of course, came to your theater, um, and uh, you did The Old Settler, which is a marvelous play, um, okay. one of my all-time favorites. Okay. And, uh, yeah, but the diversity is there. I mean, Yellow Man, I remember you did oh. Yellow Man. Uh, <laughs> you did, <laughs> you, you were one of the first building blocks for Dan Fish, too, who, of course, uh, came to Broadway and did Oklahoma. But yeah. you were right on the cusp of that. I mean, well, you, I you Denai Greera, don't forget Denai who, you know, Eclipse started at McCarter mm-hmm. um, and then mm-hmm. on to Broadway as, you know, uh, it, I think one of the first uh, of its kind of all women, all black women, although everyone forgot about having our stay. But anyway, that was that started at McCarter, as did um, the rest of her plays, um, most notably The Convert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Um, and uh but uh, Vanya too, uh, the um, yeah. not just Uncle Vanya, <laughs> but the Chris, <laughs> but the, which you did, but the Chris Durang Vanya. Um, right. Oh yes. So I mean, uh, it's quite a resume. But I do remember you telling me at one point that um, you always toyed with the idea of doing Fiorello, uh, because I guess that was one of the first musicals you saw as a kid. Oh, you have such a good memory. <laughs> um, yes, um, I, I. That was my first Broadway play that I ever saw. Was Fiorello? Uh-huh. My father had written the biography of Fiorello H. LaGuardia. Oh, I see. Yes, and so they used his book, of course, while while writing um, the book of the musical, and we were invited uh, to go, and then. My first time backstage in my life uh, was going back with my mother, father, and sister. And my father gave his book to Tom Bosley. Mm-hmm. And the picture of that <laughs> looking very small and frightened. Yeah, I've uh, I've been having quite a, a feeling of synchronicity lately uh, because I, as you may know, uh, the Lincoln Center just streamed its production of. Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, uh, which was an archival video, apparently, that was never originally intended to to be shown to the public. But Mm -hmm. it turns out they have all these wonderful and very, very well shot uh, archival videos. And so they they streamed that and it was so wonderful to see it again. But of course, that is... um, by Christopher Durang, and we just mentioned Peter and I just saw a, a production, a food for thought production of Chris's "For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls," uh, and now, but now, but now you're doing, uh, and now you're doing neither the iguana and it's all it's i feel like it's all kind of <laughs> kind of uh you know interconnected in a wonderful way it is absolutely interconnected yes and also so we were chris's home theater um so we we did three of his shows um and miss witherspoon i don't know if you ever saw that with christine yes. oh mm-hmm. my god was that <laughs> last to do um we sh- uh, let me interrupt you for a second. We should mention that the uh, Night of the Iguana is a uh, a presentation that was going to benefit the Actors Fund. It's going to stream uh, March 25th through the 28th, so just in a few days. Yes. Uh, and it is a encore streaming because it had uh, played already uh, and raised $17,000 for the Actors Fund mm-hmm. uh, from uh, La Femme uh, Theatre Productions. And uh, you directed it. 
I did indeed. And it was one of the highlights of this year for me for mm. many years, because finally, for the first time, I got to work with the great Felicia Rashad um, as Maxine and reunite with Dylan McDermott on our third Tennessee Williams play together. Oh. Um, well, it's quite a cast. You also have sure. Roberta Maxwell yeah. and Austin oh. Pendleton, etc., etc. Keith Randolph Smith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was an absolute joy to examine that play with this cast, um, and at this moment in time, and Beowulf for it. Bless him. And Darren West came on board as sound designer and scenic des- zoom scenic designer if you will <laughs> um uh beowulf did some beautiful watercolor backgrounds for us um wow just now um one of your great achievements at mccarter was getting the berlin theater to happen uh, yes you have this wonderful matthews theater um where of course our town started uh but there you are you always wanted a second space and you finally got it um mm-hmm. how did that happen did roger berlin contact you did you contact him um how did it happen Oh, Roger, I can't believe we've lost him. Yeah, um, yeah. Roger was a great supporter of mine and a great friend. And he um, was the class of 52 at Princeton. Uh-huh. And um, when I became artistic director, um, I had met him before. Um, but um, he started following all my work at McCarter and was so excited by it that he wanted when the university came to him for a large gift, he wanted his large gift to go to what he knew I wanted, which was a second stage. Mm -hmm. And so we were having dinner one night and he said, look, if I can raise, if I, if I, if the university can raise a third and you can raise a third, I'll put in a third for building your theater. And um, that's what happened. And when the university kept saying, but why, but why we want you to put money into a student center or something else? And he said, no. And they kept saying, why? He said, because I believe in Emily Mann and it's time to do this. And God bless him. I, you know, with all the wonderful um, support and accolades I've gotten in my life, to have gotten the belief of Roger Berlin is probably the pinnacle for me. Mm-hmm. Now, I would think one of the greatest challenges you ever had is uh, when you did Edward Albee's play, Me, Myself, and I, because it involved identical twins. So I would think casting that would be really tough. (laughs) Did that occur to you while you were reading it, or only when you started auditioning? uh, (laughs) I kept saying to Edward, how do you expect to do this? We either have to play a trick, or you have to do something metatheatrical. He said, no. No, (laughs) he had it in his mind and that's how it had to be. And um, we had to figure it out. And interestingly enough, we did. We we figured it out twice. Um, And the first one was with um, Colin Donnelly and Michael Esper here. Mm -hmm. And with the help of the great Jennifer von Meyerhauser, the costume designer, she saw in Colin and Michael, which I didn't see, a way to make that absolutely believable. And we did. And the same when we went to Playwrights Horizons. Um, but the the fun with Edward was, um, you know, he was absolutely right. He was 
a playwright who was also extraordinarily visual. You know, he, you know, how he wrote was like a musical score. You had to look at the punctuation, never mind each word, mm-hmm. and follow it. In fact, one of my favorite stories was when we were doing, because you know, I worked with Edward for many, many years, and mm-hmm. we were very close. Um, when I did his play All Over, which was the first one I did um, with Rosemary Harris and Michael Learned, it was just divine working on that play. Um, he came to a run through and and sat, you know, right dead center. And Rosemary Harris was so terrified that her tongue stuck to the top of her mouth. She had such dry mouth, but she got through it. And at the end, Edward wrote one note and he'd done it during the um, middle of the run through. I didn't hear the comma. Hmm. <laughs> I came to realize that this was a great compliment. That was his one note, but that's how Edward was. You had to follow his score down to the comma. And um, so that's what it was with me, myself and I, and he saw exactly how it should look visually. So when we were working with Tom Lynch, a great, great set designer, he told him down to how, thick the wires, the gold wires should be that were hanging from um, ceiling to floor. I mean, he, he just had it in his head. And then you had to, you had to translate what was in his head. And mm. that's, that's how we worked. Uh, I wonder if you really had a great deal of influence on the Renaissance of triumph of love. Um, I know you did it in 92. It's hard to believe that's almost 30 years ago, but um, what can we say? Um, But the point is that was such a marvelous production. And then suddenly um, there was some interest in that playwright as well as the musical version and the movie and all that went with that. Um, Were you really a, a great influence on that? Do you think? Well, I think so. I mean, we, we started a great Maribel revival on the hands of Stephen Wadsworth. Um, and um, we did four of the Maribels. Um, But I have to say that there was um, already um, a, a, you know, Stephen also did all the translations of, of the Maribos. Mm-hmm. But there had been, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name now, who wrote the book of Triumph of Love, um, the musical, had started with his own oh, Hattie. Uh-huh. of uh-huh. Triumph of Love. And that's, I had gone to a reading and seen it and I hadn't known the play. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Said, oh my God. First of all, Maribo, you could do, I mean, I love classical theater. I was trained at the country, right? So um, there was a great classic um, uh, playwright whom I didn't know and had small casts. And at that point, you know, I needed to save money, but I wanted to do the classic repertoire. And I thought that someone who knew that period should be directing it because what I had seen was very interesting, but it was also very jokey and contemporary. And so I wanted to do it in a more, in a purer way. And Stephen wanted to write, though I, I sent him, I think, I think I may have sent that uh, script to him to see if, the play interested him. He said, yes, but I have to do my own. And that's how that started. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then he went on to three more. Yeah. It sort of took over the country. I mean, he was doing, he, he was doing um, productions of it all over the country. It sort of took the, the uh, 
uh, the resident theater group by storm. Yeah. This week on Broadway is being sponsored by Audible. As you probably know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and now podcasts. We have highlighted Audible's work a number of times on Broadway Radio, and as a listener to Broadway Radio, you know that Audible has been supporting the development of new works through their Audible Theater Initiative. So I think that the combination of Broadway Radio listeners and Audible Plus is a perfect match. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Want to listen to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge in Seawall A Life? Audible Plus. How about Certain Women of an Age by Margaret Trudeau? Audible Plus. And The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson. Narrated by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. Audible Plus. And there's so much more. Audible Plus connects you to a ton of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen. Whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness, you can even squeeze in a workout or guided meditation without having to go to the gym or a class. Visit audible.com slash broadwayradio or text Radio all one word, lowercase, to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. We'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring Broadway Radio. So I I wanted to come back to uh, uh, your overall work at McCarter, 160 productions, more than 40 world premieres. Uh, I I mean, right (laughs) there. Right there, right there is four careers. Uh, yeah, it really, it really is. Um, I realize in the pandemic, it was it's such an odd confluence, you know, that I was stepping down just as the um, as, as the pandemic hit, and I'm really having the sabbatical I always needed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You had an un- for 30 years. Ago. You had an unexpected sabbatical in 2001 because I remember I was coming down to interview the two kids who were playing Romeo and Juliet when um, I got to the Lincoln Tunnel and it was being closed down because it was September 11th, um, 2001. Um, you must have, uh, were you in rehearsal? Yeah, I guess it was too early in the morning, right? But I mean, you were directing Romeo and Juliet, right, as I recall. We had our preview. Uh, we'd had a preview the night or invited dress the uh-huh. night before. And it was, I think it, it played to a standing ovation. It was a, you know, a very, it, it felt timely, but we had no idea how timely. Um, and then people were stranded, not leaving the city. Everyone had gone home for the day off. Mm-hmm. And, we decided there was one was was the eleventh um the, the Tuesday. Tuesday Tuesday yeah right so they were supposed to come back and no one felt like I remember Myra Lucretia Taylor saying I'm not getting on a train I am not crossing a bridge I'm terrified yeah so we I decided we wouldn't 
we wouldn't play Tuesday night, but I asked everyone to come on Wednesday and we coaxed Myra and everyone else to come back from the city and got everyone together in the rehearsal room and people cried and, mm-hmm. and talked. And then I said, you know, this is exactly the play that needs to be seen now because oddly I had it start with a boy in an Afghan cap on his head um, on a throwing a stone. And that's what started the war between the families. And um, the end of the plays, the mothers take hands over the bodies of their dead children. Mm. And, um, and uh, we played it and it took on obviously such new resonance given whatever was going through, the audience was audibly crying. Um, And uh, one woman at intermission said, I suppose a lot of people are at church tonight, but this Uh, is my church. mm, mm. And it was just one of those experiences um, of of, of playing a play for an audience that needed it um, in a way that I've never before since um experienced yeah um the house of bernada alber has always been one of my favorite plays and i remember you did an adaptation of it i'm wondering um did you deal with the directly from the spanish uh, uh, uh do you know spanish yes. or? well i did not know spanish but my wonderful intern at the time was bilingual donna harrell you might have heard of her since because mm-hmm. she's not Disney and is a fantastic creative producer in her own right. Mm-hmm. And um, we worked day and night together on it. Um, and the Lorca stayed, um, I don't mean to brag, but they, they, they liked my translation more than any other because they think it is <laughs> the most faithful and the most fluent because I was working with um, a theater person who was also bilingual. Um, and so I mean, even down to the rhythms and where the humor might be. And there's only four laughs in the whole play, but I got them, which was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was one of my favorite productions, um, Tidra. And then I was asked by Bijan Bejani um, to do uh, a version of it set in Iran. Um, and That's a I great did Almeida. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. For those who don't know the play, it really is about fascism. And that's what he was writing about. Uh, it, it's a magnificent. Um, this is what I love about talking with people like you is we can actually have discussions about the laughs in the house of Bernarda. Al- <laughs> <laughs> Few and far between. Yes, indeed. Few and far between. It's all women. It's a house of women. Right. Um, the mother is basically a fascist yes mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's it's how um that kind of terror reigns and certainly they knew about it in spain and this was um this was Lorca's last play and he never lived mm-hmm. and he never lived to to see it performed on the other extreme end of the spectrum gloria steinem uh <laughs> gloria a life you're uh your play. Um, tell us, uh, uh, did you have a, a relationship with Gloria Steinem? And, uh, and uh, tell so us. It's so interesting how that came about because 
I had gone to a party at her house, uh, you know, quite a few years before Gloria Life. And it was for women in, in, in um, theater and, and film. And I was invited. I went. I met her for the first time there. We had a lovely talk. Um, and I was one of 100 people there. Um, the next time I saw her was be, uh, backstage at Having Our Say. We were having a um, an evening of uh, we were we were we were honoring um, uh, American women, and Gloria was one of the guests. And she was backstage and went over to her, thinking she would never remember me. And she went, "Emily, I want to introduce you to my friend Anita Hill." And mm, I wow, <laughs> <laughs> with Anita Hill, and I met her. And we talked. Um, and then the next time, as I was walking across campus and my phone rang, and it was Gloria Steinem and Kathy Najimi. And Gloria said, Emily, how are you? It's Gloria Steinem. And I nearly passed out. And she said, and Kathy said to me, look, we want to write the stage biography of Gloria. And we want her to play herself. And we want to call it Gloria live on Broadway, and we want you to write it. What do you think? I mean, it was just like, boom, out of the blue. And it wow. took less than a tenth of a second to say, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was in Gloria's kitchen with Kathy and and um, and, and some of uh Glory's other friends and um, supporters, and they'd all bullied her into doing this. And I, uh, and she was to play herself with the play that I wrote. And uh, that was the beginning of a four-year journey. Um, and of course, the most wonderful thing is to have been working with Gloria herself for four years and for us to be good friends now. Um, but uh, we went into... Um, it, it was a commission from Lincoln Center. They'd gone to Daryl Roth because they wanted a woman producer and they knew about Daryl. And so Daryl brought it to Andre at Lincoln Center and um, and they commissioned me. Uh, and we went into workshop pretty soon after, within a year. I, I just wrote it. I don't know. I, I interviewed her. I talked to her. I read everything i had such a deep connection to gloria because i feel i don't i would not have the life i have without gloria steinem it's very simple and mm. i would say a lot of women of my generation would say the same thing and mm. um mm. and so we we had a great connection and we went into rehearsal with it and then had a had a um an invited audience for the run through and it was a stage reading and Gloria was amazing and people adored it and were cheering and laughing and carrying on. And afterwards she said, Emily, I will never, ever do that again. I'd rather <laughs> die. <laughs> she said to, to Daryl and Andre, you know, my, my, um, my belief in an admiration of actors has soared as my belief mm -hmm. myself being able to perform has plummeted. In fact, she was fantastic, but I, I always wondered how she felt she could do this. I mean, to pretend you're crying over your mother's death eight yeah. times a week, you, sure. have to do that, right? 
So um, we said, no, 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 we understand and we'll have um, an actor play you. And we brought on um, Diane Paulus as director. And Diane and I just had a wonderful relationship. And she said, you know, given that Gloria isn't going to play herself, I'm not interested in just doing, you know, a typical one woman play about a woman's life with an actress playing it does the form doesn't interest me and i said i, I understand it doesn't particularly interest me interest me either so we decided to make it an ensemble and break the and, and, and actually the the monologue that i'd written for for gloria to play was the spine of what ended up being gloria life with an ensemble we just broke it down and unpacked it into scenes and, and, a, and an ensemble piece with an actress at the center. Um, and, and once we went into auditions, thinking we'd have an ensemble of men and women, it was very clear that the men's roles were not very interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and most men weren't going to do it. But of the quality and caliber we wanted. So um, it became clear that once we asked some of the women to start playing some of the men's parts, it became clear that seeing the men's roles through the lens of a woman, playing it honestly, was extremely interesting. So we started to build an ensemble that was multi-generational, multi-racial um, and cultural and all women. And then we we launched into a whole rethinking of how to play it. And it became one of the most gratifying um, projects of my life. Have you ever shared that story with Gloria Steinem about the gentleman that said that you women can't direct? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if you remember her reaction to it. <laughs> Mild and nodded when I'm not surprised. surprised yeah, sure. <laughs> the famous uh, question that's always asked of songwriters, uh, what comes first, the music or the lyrics? My question becomes, um, what came first, the writing or the directing? Oh, interesting. Um, well, the writing was there from when I could hold a pencil. I mean, I was writing short stories at the age of six. Right? Uh -huh. um, but I didn't write a play mm -hmm. until my freshman year in college when I saw that William Alfred, the great... Uh, playwright and classicist who became my tutor at Harvard actually saved me there um, was offering a playwriting class, but it wasn't for freshmen. So I implored him to let me in and he said, well, write me something first. And I wrote a little scene, which was the first scene I ever wrote. And he said, okay, you're in. And in that class, not only did I write a full length play, but I met Chris Durang. Oh, oh. And Chris was in that workshop and William Alfred was his savior at Harvard also. And I remember going around the room and Alfred said, Professor Alfred said, you're sitting with, um, with a man, Chris Durang, who is going to make a mark in the American theater, mark my words. And that's how I met him. Um, and then we became friends um, though I worship the ground he walked on. And we then didn't get back together um, until um, 
I was, uh, you know, living here in Princeton and he was in Bucks County. And I was talking to Wendy Wasserstein, who was a good friend, and asked her if she wanted a commission. And she said, you know, I don't need a commission, but my dearest friend, Chris Durang, died. And he lives close by. Why don't you give Chris a call? I said, oh, he won't remember me. And, oh, you know, I still had this incredible awe. And she said, don't be ridiculous. And she gave me his phone number and I called him. And and that was the beginning of the commission for Miss Witherspoon. And we became really, really, really close over the last 30 years. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Given that you knew him at that time, by any chance did you see his show called The Greatest Musical Ever Sung at one of the uh, Harvard houses? No, that was before I arrived. He was he was a senior when I was a freshman. I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 He did it as a sophomore. I did not see that. I did hear about it. I bet you did. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm interested about how you uh, are able to transition back and forth from the directing role to the writing role. Mm-hmm. And especially when you uh, were working with somebody like Diane Paulus, who comes in and we spoke with Diane uh, about a month ago or so. We had a great oh. conversation with she her. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, uh, she has ideas that are, you know, when she uh, looks at something and she's going to go head for, head first into those ideas and, and take a play in that direction. Now she took uh, Gloria that you had written and you've directed, you know, so many productions, not, not per se of Gloria, but of other things. Did um, ha- How is it like to give up your baby to have somebody else carry the torch? Well, um for me, you have to remember that I have a third hat, which was artistic director. So I've been ah, in the room yeah. often uh-huh. helping other collaborators, right? So um, we, she and I just had a mind meld. That's what we used to call it. I mean, there was no ego in the room. I mean, I guess you could say there was one <laughs> with Diane or there were more. Yeah. But, but it was all about the work. And I just loved working with her. And she kept pushing me and I kept pushing her in all the right ways. And the respect was huge. I can imagine if you disagreed with Diane, it would (laughs) not be pleasant. Um, But I agreed with her. And we had a common vision and we worked towards it. And it was thrilling. I mean, her her mind, first of all, I, I hadn't worked with a director who shaped space as well as she did. Um, and I loved watching how she staged the ideas. I just adored. I learned a lot watching her as a director. Um, but then as a playwright, she she didn't let things rest. And as a playwright, I didn't. We were both we're both perfectionists. So that worked in our favor. And also we admired each other enormously. So I never felt threatened. I only felt stimulated. And when I totally disagreed with an idea of hers, she would either agree finally or she'd throw it out to the room and we'd all discuss it. So she Now this room could be you know Daryl Roth. Can you know we add in the Daryl Roth into the equation and Christine Lottie. Uh and now uh, uh how to decide where to go to lunch. 
<laughs> you know, we have four four very um, uh, strong personalities in the room. Uh, it, it's very interesting to me that you say throw it out to the room because I was going to ask that next, how that collaboration uh, happened because it was surely, uh, by all accounts, tremendously successful. Yes, it was. Um, well, the person who was in the room every minute was Christine. And so even as we were working up to it, we worked with Christine, Diane and I, we worked with Christine on the script for a good month before we went into um, rehearsal um, and workshops. So um, we already had, we had ideas from her early on, many of which we, we went with, many of which we didn't, but we were in collaboration then. Um, Daryl was interesting. She um, gave us quite a lot of free reign. And um, the, uh, the notes she gave were, were very stimulating. And she knew that we would take the ones we believed in and we wouldn't take the ones we didn't. She understood that. Um, I know that Diane and Daryl had to... Uh, fight each other hard on what financially was mm-hmm. a priority and what was not. But luckily I could play the playwright then and didn't have to get involved. Um, but yeah, we were, we were a great team. Um, and I would say the team was, as you say, Diane and I, and then add in Christine as the, third and the and the fourth leg of the stool was in fact Daryl. But we also opened up to the um ensemble. For example, um uh Delena Studi, who was playing Wilma Mankiller, the first chief of the uh, female chief of the Cherokee Nation and um one of Gloria's best friends, um was in fact uh, a cousin of Wilma's mm-hmm. and Wilma was her heroine. She was also um, an activist in the Cherokee nation. So um, I, we learned a lot from Delena and she pushed me um, and I wrote for her and that was exciting. Similarly, we had some scenes in the play that an, uh, uh, one of the African-American actresses said, oh, no, 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 no. This seems like um, uh, the great white savior moment. And I don't think that's good for Gloria mm. to do that way. I mean, what? And we hadn't noticed it. I hadn't noticed it. I just loved the story of her in Africa doing this incredible talking circle and saving a village. And she said, and, and um, we cut the scene. I mean, we, we listened to the women in the room um, and it was all women. Um, so we learned a lot from each other and refined and refined and refined and refined. Hmm. Um, it was very interesting that you talk about uh, 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 listening to others because it's, it seems that uh, that, that seems to be a big downfall of, of the men. <laughs> of the men in the room, <laughs> and so you you solve that by not letting men in the room, and, and and if you were successful at that, I have to apologize because I have not been properly addressing you as Doctor Man. Oh, uh, 
little and, more respect. Exactly. <laughs> so a little more respect. <laughs> exactly. You got your doctorate from Princeton. Uh, and I bring this up because, um, uh, as we all know, uh, and we've mentioned at the beginning, in 2020, uh, you retired as the artistic director at the McCarter, and you had this uh, this tremendous send off uh, from so many people that uh, have worked with you and been involved with you, and you had to do it by Zoom or uh, some other sort of remote software. I don't know if it was Zoom or not, but. Um, Tell us about that and uh, and and what that was like to uh, to be able to speak to people from all over the world who you've been able to touch. Oh, it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. Um, it was so much better than if we'd had it live under it, <sighs> you know, with uh, catered food and someone singing in the main house and dancing with donors. Um, (laughs) This was so beautiful Mm. that I was able to hear from colleagues and friends, as you say, from around the world, Marina Carr, you know, from Ireland and um, Nicole Ari Parker from LA and, and, you know, people from all over the place were both uh, giving tributes and in the audience um, I think 8,000 people at the end of the day saw it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and I was able to address everyone at the, at the very end and with my thanks and also to launch, pass the torch um, and light the torch um, of my successor. Um, but I actually quoted um gloria at the end i know i said um and then we said who are you passing your torch to she said i'm not passing my torch thank you very much i'm using my torch to light the torch of others Mm. lighting the torch of sarah rasmussen so Mm. she blazed so i was able to to say that to her and and to all the supporters of both mccarter and me so that was very nice but it was uh, um astounding i mean that nilo had written a poem nilo cruz um you know it it, it just one person after another um giving such heartfelt and, and beautiful tributes mm. i was basically bowling you know uh-huh. in my living room with my husband so um a happy tears by the way mm-hmm. but it made so much it made sense it and it helped me close the chapter Okay, in terms of closing the chapter, we talked about the fact you never did get around to doing Fiorello. Every year there must have been a play that you said, uh, well, maybe next year. Uh, What were the ones that really slipped through your fingers that you wanted to do and just didn't do? I'll tell you, Death of a Salesman. Uh Uh-huh. I never thought I would get this far in my career and not have directed that play unbelievable i mean it's one of the reasons i'm in the theater it's hmm. there are two plays that are two of the reasons i'm in the theater death of a salesman and um long day's journey mm-hmm. i haven't done either hmm. um, and they were always on the list and somehow mm-hmm. never got um programmed um <clears throat> and fiorello still <laughs> is something i would love to do um and um a little night music I uh, love to do. 
Um, and you know, what's interesting right now, I'm working with Lucy Simon and Susan Birkenhead and Vicki Clark on a new musical. How wonderful. Yeah. I'm writing the book and Susan, the lyrics, obviously, and, and Lucy, um, the uh, score and um, Vicky's directing. And it's an adaptation of Ken Horoff's novel, Our Souls at Night. That's correct. Um, and we're having an absolute blast doing it. Um, and there's another example of not being the director and a new way of collaborating mm. that I'm absolutely loving. Um, um, but what was the question? <laughs> the ones you didn't get to do. You've the answered it. I didn't get to do. Thank you. Um, an iguana. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. And to be able to have done that at least on Zoom. Um, but I think there may be interest in, in it do, being done on stage now because of Zoom. I love working on Zoom, by the way, with all of its problems. I think it's one of the um, silver linings of this catastrophe mm-hmm. is that we're able to collaborate. Our we've only gotten together the the the, the musical theater team, um, the our souls at night team twice. We're doing it all over Zoom and um, getting a lot done. Now, of course, we can't really get to the heart of the musical until we're all in the same room with the actors, but um, and the and the musicians, but. But in fact, we've gotten so much done. I've learned so much with doing the Zoom of Night of the Iguana. And I think it's a beautiful way to hear that play in a new way. And I really want to plug that. I really hope people will see it. So many people said they hadn't understood the play. Mm. They heard it in this form. So that was a great um, um that was a great discovery. And then I hope to be directing my adaptation of the pianist um, and did a zoom reading Uh um, with Santino Fontana. Oh, nice. Yeah. That sounds incredibly intriguing. Yes. And again, it was, I learned a lot as the writer and director um, doing it on, on zoom. Uh, Very helpful, very useful. So I think a lot of us have been working away um, during this time in a more relaxed fashion and and so in-depth, not knowing, you know, we can't make um, deadlines for ourselves um, in terms of production, but we can make deadlines for ourselves in terms of creation. Mm -hmm. And um, it's given people less of a frenzied way of working. We're, We're taking the time to go very deep. And I think that's, a lot of people are doing that. And I think by the time we're able to get back on stage, there's going to be this pent up roar uh, from the artists of all that we've got ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems as if there are audiences uh, dying to be back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, lot. I, I think it was this week that uh, Daryl Roth had announced her uh, show Blindness is coming right. back to the Dower Roth right. Theater. That's right. Uh, she'll be, uh, I, you know, one of the first major commercial ventures to come back mm-hmm. online. Oh, no, not surprised. That yeah. is- <laughs> <laughs> right. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Emily, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway yeah. Radio. It's been really wonderful talking with you. As we uh, mentioned, the uh, La Femme Theater production of Tennessee Williams' The Night of the Iguana, which is directed by Emily, uh, is going to be streamed again, an encore production, uh, streamed on Thursday, March 25th through Sunday, March 28th, and it benefits the Actors Fund. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. We really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Peter, I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, what happened? Uh, you know, uh, Emily's like uh, one of your best friends here, and uh, you've never you never said, hey, James, let's have Emily on, you know? <laughs> it was great talking with her. Um, I don't <laughs> – well, I would love Emily to be one of my best friends. <laughs> you have to understand that I was uh, reviewing her uh, shows from uh, 93 to 2012. So as yeah. a result, uh, I don't know if best friends uh, would actually be the, the right way of putting it. Well, so. anybody that pokes you on the subway is going to be, you know, well, in, I a, suppose, yes. in a certain circle of closeness, you know. Well, I, I see a point there, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful talking with her. Mm-hmm. I just uh, want to point out uh, – in reference to my earlier comment that although we did not get into she loves me peter mentioned fiorello several times <laughs> yeah, right same it's the same, same composer and lyricist. lyricist yeah right that's true isn't there a marino in fiorello yeah yeah there is yeah ben ben marino yeah, yes ben indeed marino, that's yeah, right, right. Yeah. no relation no relation ah, okay. you know <laughs> the honest ones are not related i see so <laughs> all right so uh I guess that wraps it up for today. Peter, why don't you give us the answer to last week's trivia? I'm looking for the name of a musical from the 70s that won many Tonys and the name of a musical from the 50s that won no Tonys at all. Tell me the name of the person who was mentioned in a song in each of these two musicals. What I was going for was Annie's was the 70s Tony winning musical and Gypsy was the 50s Tony losing musical. The person I meant mentioned in a song from each was Bo Brummel. Said this bumblebee, Bo mm. Brummel and Gypsy, uh, and your clothes may be Bo Brummelly mm. and Annie. But as Paul Witte and first and Tony Janicki later pointed out, Santa Claus is mentioned in both shows. Everybody give a cheer. Santa Claus is sitting here <laughs> as in Gypsy. And in Annie, Santa Claus we never see. Santa Claus, what's that? Who's he? By the way, wouldn't it be funny if after the often sang, Santa Claus, what's that? Who's he? Rose would barge on stage and yell, Mr. Goldstone. Well, anyway, Tony also pointed out that Fred Astaire is mentioned in All I Need is the Girl and I Don't Need Anything But You. So that's how that played out. Those were the only two who uh, came through. This week's question, this is going to sound harder than it really is. He was a vaudevillian who appeared in four musicals nearly 100 years ago. These are the shows. Hazard Shots, Ritz Review. Gay Paris, Piggy, and Cross My Heart. But finding his name is not the real answer to the question. We're more interested in his wife's name. Wife for a while, they had a most acrimonious divorce as the result of his cheating. But the wife's name will remind you of a character 
in a Tony-winning 60s musical that became a high-grossing film and a TV film, too. Who the vaudevillian is is important, but more important is the first and last name of the wife and the 60s character. You're right. It does sound harder than it is. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. A lot of people are going to get this. <laughs> no, no, I won't get it. I just think that it's hard. Oh, all right. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Michael, what do we have in uh, this week's musical moment? Well, this week, this past week, we celebrated the 65th anniversary of the Broadway opening of My Fair Lady mm. on March 15th, which has always been a... Uh, you know, a counter argument to that day being, being <laughs> bad luck. Right. <laughs> sure is. And so I thought we would use a musical moment from that uh, brilliant score from the original cast recording. Uh, there are so many possibilities, but um, I thought I, actually that I would pick a lesser, uh, n- not one of the most famous songs in the show, uh, Show Me, because I have always thought that Julie Andrews' performance of that song on that original cast recording is absolutely fantastic. She, um, I was thinking she, like Barbara Cook, she was one of those people who had basically a soprano voice, but she could also belt very powerfully, uh, but in a way that it didn't sound like she had two different voices, uh, which, which some sopranos do, uh, you know, there was no evident break and her acting of, of the song, I think is so great. And her, her singing obviously in 1956 was beyond reproach. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's a highlight of that album, even though, again, not one of the most famous songs. And I, by the way, I was saying to James yesterday, uh, just parenthetically, um, we have had Julie on our podcast as a guest and uh, more recently, far more recently, Petula Clark. And it was amazing how Petula was talking about how she and Julie used to tour uh, mm. during during World War Two in, mm. in England, uh, you know, to perform for the troops. And I was thinking, you know, not only are these people legends on an artistic basis, but it's such an incredible privilege for us to be able to talk to them just in terms of human history and living memory. You know, these are people who actually performed for the troops in World War II. And, you know, uh, Petula mentioned the, the she was referring to the London Blitz. Uh, these people lived through it. Uh, when when the pandemic started, uh, I, I noticed that several uh, television programs and news programs asked Julie to come on uh, because I think many people think of her as, a, you know, <laughs> as a, a, their mother or, or, you know, or their big sister. Mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Those incredible films, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, etc. And uh, and she talked about how she felt like the pandemic in a way was it reminded her of, of World War Two in the sense of how everyone had to pull together and kind of hunker down. And I think it was very comforting uh, from for people to hear from her about the pandemic. And I that's it's obviously so, so wonderful that she's still with us and still able to talk about things like that and that we have all of these great recordings and, and video tapes and films of her um, to remind us of her amazing talent. So, Michael, uh, I, I'm not going to spill any tea here, maybe, mm. 
But, uh, you know, when I, I was over visiting with you in your apartment yesterday, your beautiful apartment, I might add. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, I, I spied a photograph of you and Julie Andrews where Julie Andrews was kissing you on the cheek. Is this correct? Uh, yes, it, it's one of, obviously one of my most prized possessions. That was <laughs> when so, she, yeah. uh, she, she was the cover uh, interview of uh, in theater magazine in 1999 mm-hmm. and uh then I, and i i got i got to interview her and of course i'll never forget that it was just me and her in a room one-on-one it was un- unforgettable so if you have an electronic version of that photograph let's uh put it in the show oh yeah as well. oh, i've splashed it all over, over the place yeah. <laughs> i will be glad to send it to you <laughs> okay so that wraps it up for today on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to your broadway radios this week on broadway bye-bye bye speak and the world is full of singing and i'm winging higher than the birds touch and my heart begins to crumble the heavens tumble darling at night words 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 i'm so sick of words i get words all day through first from him now from you is that all you blighters can do Show me, show me, don't wait until...